much do you really know about the history of education in the United States? What would you say about the populations public education was designed for and which ones were left out? How well can you speak to the origins and effects that certain policies, reforms, and practices have on communities of learners? I have to say that at the beginning of 2021, I thought I knew a lot about K-12 through education in the United States. Maybe I felt this way because I am a product of this education, or because in undergrad, my methods courses touched on the history of scholars like Horace Mann and Jean Piaget, and about desegregation efforts after the Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka decision in 1954. Or maybe it was because I thought I knew the ins and outs of the educational system because I have spent my entire career as a part of this system. Whatever the reason, I was wrong. I had barely scratched the surface of understanding, and some of what I believed to be facts were actually mistruths. I have to give a shout out to my professor, Dr. C, who this past semester taught one of the best graduate courses I have ever taken. It was called The Foundations of Teaching and Learning. Each week, he challenged me to explore the history of education in the United States in a way that I had never done before, to challenge privilege, including my own privilege, and how educational policy and practices ingrained in our systems uphold privileges for some and continue to ignore the needs of others. Week after week, he asked thought-provoking questions about my own experiences and how different learning theories and agendas intersect with not only my K-12 education, but also how I approach teaching and learning as an educator. One of the required books for this course was called School, The Story of American Public Education, and it gave me the idea for this episode. Everyone has a story to tell, and I've been giving snippets of my own story in various episodes of this podcast. Growing up, I never really thought about the quote-unquote school experience being that much different from my parents' experiences. But now I realize that I need to understand more of my parents' stories about how the teaching and learning of mathematics influenced their lives and indirectly my life. Today's guests are Dr. Ernest and Karen Harrison, my parents. I have to thank them for taking this risk and allowing me to interview them and upload this for the world to hear a small part of their stories. I hope this episode will encourage you to interview your families and reflect on how this history might be influencing your thoughts and beliefs about the teaching and learning of mathematics. Welcome to the Kids Math Talk podcast, where in each episode, we give parents and educators practical tips and insights that will deepen mathematical understanding while also encouraging the conversation about math to remain active and positive. I'm your host, Desiree Harrison, elementary math coach and Kids Math Talk founder. My father grew up in North Carolina in the 1940s and 50s, and my mother grew up in Texas in the 1950s and 60s. This was the time of segregation, with it being dangerous for many African Americans and other populations of color to seek a quality education. 
People were literally risking their lives for this chance. Some even had to walk past all white schools only to catch a bus to attend a segregated school farther out in town. It was a time where African-American homes were being burned to the ground, along with other violent acts of rage, sometimes being consequences for African-Americans pursuing an education. It was also the time of the Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka decision in 1954, ruling segregation in schools as unconstitutional. This was the time of the launch of Sputnik in 1957, pushing the United States to invest more money and resources into science, technology, engineering, and math in schools. With just this quick sneak peek into history, I would imagine that anxiety around education and learning would be high, much like it is today. It's with this thinking that I begin the interview. What was a typical day like when you were in grade school and your earliest memories about learning math? Okay. Well, my first time that I recall going to school, I was about five years of age and I was in the, what we called at that time, high first. That might have been what people refer to today as kindergarten. So at five, I was in high first. And the first thing I do remember about going there was that the teacher was beginning to teach the alphabets, which I had not really been exposed to. And there was one little boy in the class who the teacher told him to go to the, we call it blackboard. You may call it something else today, but told him to go to the blackboard with a pointer and and point to ABCs. And I was flabbergasted, but I was amazed that this little boy could point to ABC. And I'm saying, how do you do that? And I wanted to be able to do that. And I guess that started my desire to be competitive in classes. So I wanted to learn how to say and know what A and B and C was during that time. And I guess from there, we I, I recall going on then to the first grade. And I began to learn to read at that grade level. And I remember this book very well. It was about Mac and Muff. Mac was a little dog and Muff was a little cat. That's something I, I guess I just remember a lot of stuff a lot of things uh, with my memory. I, I have a pretty good memory. And I started learning to read that Mac Chase Muff. So that's my first uh, memory of learning to read. My earliest memories of learning anything was learning my times tables. And I don't know if I had them written down. I guess I did, or if they were in a book or whatever, but I remember my mother quizzing me on them. And I loved multiplication. And as I learned them and became more and more familiar with them, I wanted to multiply everything. I don't remember when I first learned to read, but I remember just reading some of everything. And I had all these little storybooks that uh, I read. I don't remember the characters. Now, how old do you think you were? I was probably nine or 10 then. And I say that simply because that's the age of being in uh, the fourth and fifth grade when 
children typically begin to learn to multiply? My first experience in terms of, as your mom said, timetables was I was in the third grade. And I remember as the teacher had us in a line walking through the hallway, going from one room to the other. And I would pass this room and I would see these kids just raising their hands and wanting to get attention. And I learned that they were doing timetables. And as time went on and I learned what they were doing and why they were raising their hands, it was something that this particular class, which was the fourth grade, the lady was known and we learned as kids before we got to that class that you had to learn your timetables. That was a specific thing that you had to do in that class. So the one thing I wanted to do when I got to the fourth grade was learn to do timetables. And I think I did them quite well. I learned, well, I don't know if it was learned by memory or how I learned them, but I did learn them. And that was my first experience with math. Now, I'm sure I had been taught to add somewhere before that grade, but the timetables was the most specific thing that got my attention in terms of math. Mm -hmm. About learning the times tables, and sometimes people call them times tables, multiplication facts, like okay. your, your okay. fives, your twos, whatever, like mm -hmm. they all have mm -hmm. different terms. But do you all remember being timed? about that when you were learning them? Do you remember your teacher ever giving you a time limit for how, like for solving like 20 or 30 problems? I don't remember that. Now, the time limit was based in, in, in terms of fourth grade. The teacher would spend so much time with math, then that teacher would have to teach another subject. So you'd have to leave the math part and go to the English or go to the social studies or history or geography or something like that. The only thing I remember being timed to complete was in high school. We would have so much time on a test or an assignment or a, a pop quiz. Because mm -hmm. yet we're trying to get away from time tests, but yes. a lot of teachers still use time tests for multiplication. And, mm. you know, that puts extra pressure on kids because it sounds like the pressure that you all had mm -hmm. was just like within yourself wanting right. to like, yes. know, wanting mm -hmm. to know more. Mm -hmm. Yes. But it sounds like both of you really remember multiplication and the teacher kind of driving the multiplication or the learning of it. But it also doesn't sound like you all have negative memories of that experience, which is a lot different from what children today might say or what adults who are in their 20s and 30s might say about their experience. So just thinking about that, like how was it more like teacher driven or just a student student centered for you? I feel that my uh, experience with mathematics and really everything was positive because I had very caring teachers and I was so highly motivated and supported at home. My mother was willing to quiz me and ask me lots of questions. But the, the next mathematics 
memory I have wasn't until high school. <laughs> and that was because my high school mathematics teacher was so much fun. She had all sorts of sayings that she would share with us to motivate us. Like we might complain about a difficult problem and she would share with us that we needed to develop some stick to that we had to develop the attitude not to give up so quickly or so easily that we had to stick to it. And I know that that was ingrained in me from her and likewise from my mother, that you didn't give up on something so easily. If it was difficult, you studied, studied it harder and made more sense uh, of it. But I enjoyed algebra and geometry, especially in high school. My experience after the fourth grade, I wanted to do it because I was aware that I was not going to be able to go to the next grade unless I learned the timetables. Because the students were saying, you've got to learn the timetables in the fourth grade. If you don't learn them, you won't be able to go to the fifth grade. So some way I was definitely encouraged to do that. And I did. Now, my next experience that I recall about math was in the 10th and 11th grade. There I had algebra and geometry, which I did quite well. I don't remember other math courses before that, but I was quite a good student in algebra and geometry. I have a little story about geometry. In my school, it was a very small school, not a whole lot of students, but at that time I also was a football player. I played football and I played basketball and sort of like that was my real interest, but I could do the math quite easily for some reason or another. I had no problems and there was an occasion I recall that the one my homeroom teacher was not present that day and the principal mixed my class at that time which was 11th grade with the 10th grade math class. And the math teacher, and I was a big talker, to be very honest with you in class, whether or not it was something uh, that I was answering or a question or just whispering in somebody's ear about something, to, I guess, get me quiet, he gave me a problem in geometry. He says, here, this problem, it was a word problem. And he says, I want you to go to the blackboard and you work this problem. And he says, I'm going to assign someone else to go with you to help you do this problem. And it was a young lady. So we went to the board and I started reading the problem. And I looked at her and she was reading the problem. And I says, OK, uh, let's do this. She says, no, I'm not doing this. I don't know about this. I'm not going to do this. I says. Well, I can write, I can do this problem. So I read it word by word and used the steps by steps that I had learned about geometry. And I did work the problem. And the professor, my teacher, he said, after I finished working the problem, he called the class attention. And he says, I gave Ernest this problem. I didn't think he's going to be able to work this problem. I just wanted to keep him quiet. He so, said that in front of the y- class? Yes. Yes. Because I was a talker. Right? So, so he was, he was amazed that I could work those problems. But as I said, 
I had no problems with geometry or algebra. So therefore, I thought I was a whiz in math, particularly when he told the class that, and he was telling the seniors that, and I was a junior. And after that, when I decided that I was going to college, I thought I would major in math. That's another story, but it's it's an interesting story. But my main thrust, as I said, I, I didn't, I wasn't as, how should I say it, serious about math in the 10th and 11th grade as I could have been or should have been. I think I could have been much better, a better student if I had not been a athlete because that was my love playing football and basketball. But then I did go on to college after that. And when I went to college, my thoughts would be when someone said, well, what are you going to major in? I said, I'm a major in math. So that's another story. But it sounds like very positive growing up that you had really positive associations with math. That you oh, too, yes. Wow. Yes. 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 Which could be... Because of that in school and then because of your parents encouraging you, that could be the reason why like Darius and I had positive experiences too, or like weren't afraid of math or because, you know, there, if you as a parent have all these negative associations and you're not necessarily going to encourage your kids to have positive or to make positive associations. Many social media and news reports in recent years mention the effects of high-stakes testing, differentiation, accountability, and class sizes. According to an extensive meta-analysis, researchers Almarod Fisher et al. found that reducing class size, thus making more time for small group instruction and personalized instruction, is likely to have a positive impact on student achievement. Even with this knowledge, there are still reports of classes in the past 20 years having 30 or more students at one time, placing a strain on resources, space, educational achievement, and teachers. Just thinking about the, like, I know, Dad, you said you went to small school. Mom, I know you went to small school too, right? It was yeah. like, so like when you all say small about how many kids were in your class. <laughs> Well, I remember being in sixth and seventh and eighth grade, and we were all in the same room, oh. taught, taught by the same teacher, and he would give an assignment to the sixth graders, then he would give the seventh graders their assignment and the eighth graders or whatever order, and we would have to work, you know, do our assignments, and various ones of us were called to the board. Sometimes as I think back over it, when I learned I was going to be doing this interview, I said, I think he used to give us all the same thing. (laughs) And he would just uh, mix up the complexity or the difficulty level of the problems. But I remember being at the at the blackboard with uh, a seventh grader when I was in sixth grade or vice versa or a seventh grader when I was in eighth grade or whatever. We all had to learn some of everything. Now, the testing may have been different. I don't know that. But the assignments, I think, were generally just uh, some of everything for all of us. And that math teacher, the sixth, seventh, eighth grade teacher, uh, not only taught us math, he taught us all of our subjects. 
The only thing was that was different was eighth graders would go to the first grade classroom because first graders got out at, I think, 2.30. So eighth graders would then go down to the first grade classroom and we would have penmanship and spelling from her. But otherwise, all of our subjects were taught by one male teacher who was also principal of the school. (laughs) And it was a first through eighth grade school. At that time, uh, there was no kindergarten or other distinguished level before first grade. I'm going to go back and tell you another little story about that math class that I was in that I had been mixed with the senior class and I was a junior. My brother was also in that math class. And at the end of the term, and we got my report card, and I had A's for my math, and my brother didn't have A's. So he actually went to the teacher and said, how can my brother get A's and I don't get A's? So the teacher told him, and he told me this, the teacher told him, says, because your brother can work hard problems. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that that was the story about my math at that level. How many Black teachers did you have growing up? Do you ever wonder why there aren't more Black teachers in public education? I had one Black teacher for a special social studies course in fourth grade that lasted for a few months. I didn't have another Black teacher until my sophomore year of college. The cause for this absence is deep-rooted. Desegregation is one of the reasons. Up until the end of the first half of the 20th century, teaching was one of the only professional options available to many African Americans who attended college. Because of this, African American teachers became more than just someone standing in front of a classroom full of children. The African-American teacher symbolized the privilege of an education and knowledge about reading, writing, and arithmetic. These Black teachers were respected by the entire Black community. Teaching was a noble and rewarding profession. As a result of the Brown v. Board decision in 1954, Black public schools began to close, forcing students to attend formerly all-white schools. As a consequence of these closures, there was no longer the need for the high percentage of elementary and secondary school teachers. And instead of using qualifications to decide which teachers should remain, many school districts decided to listen to white parents who didn't want their children being taught by Black teachers. The system also made it difficult for Black teachers to advocate for themselves, forcing almost 40,000 African-American teachers and administrators to lose their jobs within a span of 10 years after the Brown versus Board decision. My next question, were all of your teachers Black? Yes. Yes. Well, you, you have to remember when we were in school, it was total segregation. And we were both in the South at that time. And uh, the school was totally segregated to the extent that uh, many things that the uh, white schools had, we didn't have. I never had the opportunity, which I 
say, to learn to type. We didn't have a typing class, which I was now feel that I would have loved to have learned to type at that level, but we didn't have that. There were a lot of subjects I guess we didn't have uh, because, of, as I said, there were few teachers. We didn't have that many teachers because all of our, from K to 12, when I first started going to school, we're in the same building, K through 12. And you ask early how many students were in your class. My graduating class in high school was 38. Yeah, that's that was that was big class. Mine was 26. But mm. I did have shorthand, typing, home ec, and then all of your basic classes, choir. And then there was band at my high school. I went my elementary. I went to elementary school in a building that was first through eighth grade. Then I went to the only high school for African-Americans in my town. Uh, but but we did have a wide range of subject choices. We, everybody it was a state requirement to take a Texas history class and a civics class. And civics had a lot of math in it because we learned how to handle a checking account, balance our checkbook, uh, write a budget and work with a budget. Like an assignment would be you, you make a certain amount of money per month and these are your bills. How do you save? What do you pay first? Or if you have an account at a store, how do you handle an account? There was a lot of uh, education toward a real livelihood, uh, whereas I'm aware now many schools have cut that out. Now, yeah. you got to remember that your mother came along long after I did. Many of the things that she experienced and had in her class in classes high I, in high school. I didn't have because I was years ahead of her and uh, my high school just didn't have all of those subjects as such. But you went but, to the only uh, the only black school, too, just like mom did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That That's was, all there, there weren't any choices. Yes. Just a, one was one black school in my town, in, in my town and uh, high school. There was only one in my whole county. And that was the high school that I attended. That was uh, quite an experience, quite an experience. And, you know, we, did, we didn't know, well, we knew some, but we didn't know so much that we weren't getting a first-rate education. For that area and that time, we were getting a first-class education. And that probably varied from household to household based on the participation and involvement of the parents. I never, in high school, I don't ever remember having a brand new book. The books were passed to our high school when the white high school got new books and materials. Their used, old used books would come to us. So my name, to put my name in a textbook when I was in high school, I was always the sixth or seventh or eighth person to use that book or maybe more. Mm -hmm. That that was the same as I experienced in terms of hand-me-downs, because even when I played football, the equipment that we had was not new equipment. It was passed over from the white high school to us. So um, we I didn't have a new headgear or new 
shoulder pads or new shoes or cliques like that that was passed down from the white high school for us to use even the uniforms as such. So that was uh, the so-called, I guess, separate but unequal. Yeah, it was separate and unequal. The law used to say it was separate but equal, but that was a farce. I never even thought about used books and used used equipment oh, you definitely yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yes yes i think probably the only thing that was new for us our music teacher our vocal choir teacher was a very good musician and she probably did buy some of the new uh song material that we had to use i don't remember that being very tattered and worn and then home ec everything was new because the school had a budget for her to buy food for us to learn to cook. And each student had to bring in their own fabrics and et cetera to learn to sew. So that was probably the most equal part of it. You know, people spoke of separate but equal. And as your mom said, it was never, never equal. And finally, this was taken to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court says, No, you have to desegregate. Now, that was in 1954. And as I recall, the little high school that I attended, which was totally segregated, did not desegregate until 1965, some 11 years after that decision had been made. And the reason was when the Supreme Court made that decision, They did not put a timetable as to when desegregation was to stop and everything and students had to be put together. So the southern states who were had they just delayed it and delayed it until until they had to. to. And the kids left that black school where I attended and were put in the white school at that time. Were they bust over? Well, let let me put it this way. Where I was in school, there were no buses as such. You walked. We walked from home to school, and it may have been two or three miles. So we could walk to the white school just as easily as we could walk to the black school. Well, it was near, come to think of it, the white school was near where I lived than my school that I attended. So there was no busing, but busing did come about, as you do know, uh, after that decision, because we're like here in in the city of big cities, metropolitan cities, kids couldn't walk to school where they lived miles and miles away. So it had to be bused. And there was a big thing about busing, particularly here in, in, in Michigan and I guess all over, wherever they had to desegregate, there was big, big problems of busing. So. That's my story. I I listened to another um, podcast where have you heard no, of Malcolm no. Gladwell? Mm-mm. Well, he he's written a few books and he has a podcast, but he did one podcast episode where he it wasn't him directly interviewing Linda Brown, who was part of the board, okay. Okay. but he had like <laughs> clips of her talking and then clips of other people talking like other people in education during that time talking and they were 
saying how they didn't bring up the fact that there wasn't a timetable. I don't think they brought that up, but they were focused on how it was the ruling made it the kid's responsibility to desegregate instead of talking about the like the adults doing desegregation and the adults having to like have conversations about how like instead of having separate but equal how adults need to integrate but it's like you were making the kids do all the work and so that the kids were kind of used as pawns because the adults technically Mm -hmm. didn't have to change any of their ways Mm -hmm. and so I thought that was really interesting While many children learn to identify coins at some point in elementary school, financial literacy is unfortunately not an intentional part of most mathematics curriculums. Learning how to make money, create budgets, manage money, and make responsible purchasing choices is often dependent upon the experiences a child has outside of the school day. Dad, I know like you had a job before you went to school. And right, you didn't have a job. No, you worked in granddad's office in high school. I um, worked in the summers for two weeks when the regular nurse had her vacation. And I believe dad probably always timed everything. There were no scheduled operations and nobody was due to deliver a baby during that time, that time period. So primarily what I had to do was answer the phone, take messages, make sure all of the linens were clean and folded and put away properly. I also cut and folded and sterilized gauze squares. I made Q-tips. And by that, I mean they were wooden. The handle part was wooden and the swab portion was only on one end. And I had cotton to twirl it in and make make them a certain size and they would go in bundles of tin and get sterilized my dad never taught me how to use a sterilizer I think he thought probably I might do something wrong and blow the house up but at any way those were the things that I did oh and also I had to fold newspaper into triangle bags Fold the newspaper a certain way so that when you open it up, it was a bag and it fit in this special custom made wooden frame that my father had made because his hobby was carpentry. And that's all I did for two weeks. And I think my dad gave me $20 for the two weeks. And at that time, I was happy to see that. We're talking about, I was in high school from 1958 to 62. So $20 for two weeks was great. Plus at that time, I I didn't do any shopping for myself. So I just saved that money. Was was he the only black doctor in the city? County. The county. In the, in the city, in the county, in the in the upper part of the state of Texas, that part of Texas. Yes. Okay. He was the only African-American doctor. And he waited on all of the all of his patients i believe were african american in the lamar county and in paris texas and surrounding rural areas he did house calls he was a visiting home doctor he was a surgeon he was an internist 
and he was a pharmacist. He could order, he had a license to order the drugs and medications that he needed for his patients. We lived in a two-story house. The stairs, steep 20-some stairs up to the second floor, there's lots of room up under there. And being a carpenter, he had renovated the space under the stairwell and built shelves in there and had a platform for a desk with his typewriter and fixed it with a light. That was his drug room. Yeah, well, my experience uh, working, I worked four years uh, while I was in high school in a barber shop. I would uh, get up every morning about uh, six, six o'clock. And as I said, no, I didn't, no car or anything. I walked from my home to the barber shop, which was downtown as such. And I was to make sure that uh, the heat, I had to build a fire to heat the water for them to shave and all of that. And at that time, there was, they, they didn't have an electric uh, gas heater or something like that for to heat the water. There was a little stove that uh, ran pipes and rot and, and, and uh, rods to the um, water tank. So I had to build a fire and had to keep that fire going all day to make sure the water stayed hot. And then I had to clean up the barbershop, especially after a period of time I'd have to sweep so often to get the hair off the floor. Then at when they closed, I had to clean the barbershop up and uh, dust and clean the shower and clean the sinks and that kind of thing. So that was my experience uh, the four years, every, every, every day except uh, Sunday. Uh, I went to work, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, it it uh, made me the guy and man that I am, I think. I learned a great deal of responsibilities. And my uh, the, the gentlemen who were the barbers, they were African-American barbers, but the barbershop was for white only. Yes, mm-hmm. they owned the barbershop. When I say only, they rented the building, but it was it was the African-American gentleman who I considered as my role model, who uh, ran the barbershop and cut the hair and, and all of that. And each uh, Saturday after they closed, they would get together. He and his brother cut the hair. They would get together and they would sit down because they had a they didn't say, well, I got I got this in my box in terms of money and you got to know they put it all together and they would divide whatever they uh, had earned during that week. And then they would give me a few coins uh, for having worked. Even though I did shine shoes, I made a, a few dollars shining shoes. It was that was my experience growing up. And I knew that the only way that I could change my status was to go to college. And this was something that my mother insisted on. That was drilled in me from an early age that I would be going to college. And I don't know how they did it, but they were able to send me to college. I never pictured uh, white people in the barbershop before. Yes. 
Mm-hmm. It was unique. That was a very unique situation because not very far away, I would say on the next corner, there was an all black barbershop. But this was unique. He, as I said, the, he was he and his brother being African-Americans, and he had a good business because the whites would come to him to, for him to cut their hair, shave them, shampoo them, take showers, and all of that. So that was a unique situation in that little town. That was the only, how should I say it, that was the only experience of not being segregated that I, I experienced. At that time. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give your 10-year-old self about learning math? That's a very difficult question in my mind. You know, I, I, I felt like I, I must have had an aptitude for math because I really didn't study it as I should have, you know, to become a whiz. I didn't because uh, different than your mother experience, I didn't have that at home too. My parents did not, uh, let me say, have me to do homework when I came home from school. If I did it, and I don't remember doing a whole lot, to be honest with you, most of, most of my learning was done right there at school. I don't know if I had a whole lot of homework. I don't remember having a whole lot of homework, to be very honest with you. So what i what i did was basically just on my own and learning while i was at school and just having sort of like i don't know if it was a gift or what i i had a good memory let me put it that way i had a good memory i think i would probably tell my 10 year old self to slow down double check your work better it's not a race I always like to get through with what I had to do and would not sometimes would not check my work carefully. Anything you want to say about your own career and maybe how your your schooling and upbringing influenced your career or your your higher education? Well, mine was influenced by the careers of my parents. My mother was a registered nurse. And my father was a doctor and they paid meticulous attention to things they had to do and everything had to be as right as they could possibly get it. And I learned, uh, I guess what patience I did develop, I learned that from my mother to, uh, to do a job well or not do it at all. But I don't think that was ever an option for me either. <laughs> if there was something to be done, uh, I was going to do it. At first, I wanted to be a medical major. I wanted to be a doctor. But I had a summer experience of working with youngsters at Girl Scout camp where I taught nature lessons. And that's when I got turned on to working with youth. And I decided to uh, become a science teacher. And that led to my career in science education. My experience was in my hometown, they're the only professionals that uh, I encountered were the teachers. Either you were a teacher or a minister in terms of otherwise being a construction worker or working in some kind of factory, like a furniture factory or a tanning factory. And I knew 
as I observed my father, that I wanted not to do that. And I said, the only way I can get out of this kind of a condition is to go to college. And that's one of the reasons I was dead set on going and trying to get a degree in some sort of area that I was going to be a teacher. And to be a teacher, I knew I had to get to college. And that's how I became a teacher, a professor, a superintendent. Uh, And I also was a vice president of the college and uh, assistant superintendent of the school district. And later on, I became the head executive, direct executive of a human resource department for a community college that had four campuses. And we had about uh, 100,000 students that made up those four uh, campuses. So that's my experience. And of course, going on to college, the story is, as I said, obviously, I went on to college. I got a bachelor's and a master's degree in history. And then later on, I got a PhD from the University of Michigan. So obviously, um, the little school I attended must have taught me something (laughs) to be able to go on and and do those things and be successful. I got this story. I got to tell you about the mass situation. Okay. Can I tell you about that story? Yeah. As I had said earlier in, in the interview that I had decided that I was going to major in math when I went to college. And my first year, we were on the quarter system. And to take a course in math, which I did, I took algebra, geometry, and trigonometry in in college, my first and second year. And I made A's and B's. And I, I had a good memory, and I didn't have to do a whole lot of studying. I could just do it. But the turning point came. When I got to calculus, now, I don't know if it was fear or what, because I had been told by the math students who had gotten to that point that this professor was really tough. And not only was she so tough, she didn't want to see you on campus anywhere in the student center having a soda or socializing or anything like that. And this is the truth. If guys who were in her math course, calculus or whatever, saw her walking near the student center, they would run. And I took the calculus class after I had made A's and B's in algebra, geometry, trigonometry, all of those courses. I got in this calculus class and I didn't have a whole lot of counseling in terms of what classes I should take. So they had me taking calculus, physics, French, economics, and all of that at the same time. So there were students who didn't have those kinds of course lined up like that. So they were doing okay in calculus. I had one of my classmates, he, he took his quiz and exams with a fountain pen. He was that good. He could just do those problems. But anyway, my professor in that class was one who I felt was going to weed out 
the students who she thought shouldn't be mathematicians. So there was no encouragement about, all right, come, come and I'll show you how to do this and come by my class and we'll talk about it and this kind of thing. And if you're having problems, solve them. But when we took a test or something like that, and there were certainly problems that some of the kids couldn't work, she would go to the blackboard and work the problem. But as she was working the problem with her right hand, she was writing the problem and working it. And she was coming right along with her left hand, erasing it. Now, if you can believe that stuff, that's the truth. We, I couldn't write down the answer to the problem because she had already erased it before I could write it down. So that was the kind of professor that I had in that course. And as a result, I decided that instead of being a mathematician, I would become a historian because I did well in history. So my point, I guess, about that is you have to have someone who is teaching math to kids to want them to learn and know what it is that they should be knowing in order to solve problems rather than to say, uh, and I, I kind of felt that she says, well, I understand this, you should understand it too. But I still feel that I could have if I had devoted as much time to it as I should have other than all of the other courses that I was taking on a quarter basis. What advice do you have for parents and educators? Do things that are going to give you, build your self-confidence and your child's self-confidence. And not to pressure children, but encourage them, you know, to try and to, to just try. So just be patient with them and, and with yourself and build some fun into every day that you can. It's surprising how much pressure children can put on themselves right because they they know their teacher and or their parents expectations Mm -hmm. yeah and they don't they don't know how to to relax and let go of of some of that thank you mom and dad for doing this interview i learned so much and i know that the people listening are going to learn so much from you well i have enjoyed this i got a big kick out of it I had such an amazing time interviewing my parents, and I want to thank all of you, too, for listening to the very end. They have so much more to share. Again, this was just a really small snippet into their lives, but I'm so glad that they were willing to share it with all of you. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues to keep the Kids Math Talk conversation going. You can always tweet me with questions or comments using the handle at Kids Math Talk. You can also head to my website, kidsmathtalk.com slash podcast for previous episodes of this podcast. And join us next week for another episode of the Kids Math Talk podcast.